and welcome to Action Speaks Media. Concerned about the new healthcare laws in America? How to take back your health, preventing illness and the need for medication. Hello, I'm Action Speaks Media reporter Callie Mitchell. Healthcare in America has been on the decline for years, treating illness rather than promoting health and healthy living. Trading increased drug addictions and unnecessary drug overuse for staggering medical bills and prescription costs. By following a conscious diet, helping your body stay balanced, and adding a yoga or meditation routine to your weekly schedule, you can take back your health and prevent the need for America's sick care system. Walls is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa. In 2000, Walls was diagnosed with relapsing, readmitting multiple sclerosis, a disease of the brain and central nervous system. Eventually, due to a weakness in her back muscles, Walls had to use a wheelchair. It was at this point that she decided to take back her life through diet change and exercise. She has now regained full function of her muscles and body. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2000, uh, and uh, uh, of course, being a academic doc, I wanted to treat my disease using conventional drugs, uh, be as aggressive as possible, find a center that was doing uh, clinical research. And so I saw the best people at the Cleveland Clinic, uh, took the newest drugs, and had uh, just one relapse uh, in the next three years where I had weakness in my right hand and arm. And that would have been um, considered a huge success had I been in, in a drug trial. But the problem was I was getting steadily weaker, uh, more fatigue, uh, and it was getting more and more difficult to walk, uh, such that I ended up in a two-reclined wheelchair in the progressive phase of the illness uh, and uh, was uh, then given uh, mitoxantrone continued to decline. Uh, I was given Tizabri, that new uh, biologic drug, and continued to decline. Um, and as I was in the wheelchair, uh, that's when it, it looked to me like the best conventional drugs were not going to stop this uh, slow decline into a bedridden, uh, possibly demented state. I also had a lot of MS-related pain. It didn't look like I was going to, uh, that I was likely to have a circumstance where I had untreatable pain. Uh, and so that is how I began to uh, start reading uh, in PubMed, uh, uh, looking at first for clinical trials and new drugs, and then finally looking for vitamins and supplements. And I began to experiment with myself. I had switched from a vegetarian diet to the paleo diet. And through all of that, um, I, you know, I continued to read, I continued to experiment. Um, I slowed my decline. I discovered functional medicine, added more vitamins and supplements. And then I had you know, this really big aha moment that I, what I should do is specifically design a diet and lifestyle to maximize everything that I could. I, I redesigned my diet, still following paleo principles, but I was stressing the nutrients I was taking in uh, supplement form. You know, and that's really when the magic happened. Uh, in three months, I was up out of the wheelchair, walking with a cane, 
six months I'm walking without a cane, and nine months I'm on my bike for the first time. In uh, six years, uh, biking around the block, you know, and I'm crying, my kids are crying, uh, because this felt so miraculous. Mm-hmm. And then at 12 months, I'm able to do an 18-mile bike ride with my family. So this really transformed how I think about medicine, how I think about disease, uh, health. It transforms the way I do my clinical practice. Um, and then I end up with this... Um, moral obligation, internal obligation, to tell others that what I had done, why I had done it, and invite them to consider uh, making diet and lifestyle changes for themselves. Well, first, Harry, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I just wanted to go back for just a moment. Um, How did it feel? How were you feeling when you were taking these, these medications and still your body was in decline. Well, you know, I, I, I uh, was just so upset as I read the literature and I saw it's progressive illness. Um, and I was just getting more agitated and concerned uh, and they're really frightened. And um, my uh, spouse said, you know, uh, Terry, you've got to stop reading. It's just getting you so upset. So let's find the very best people who can take care of you. Let them make all the decisions and just stop reading the science. So for the first three years, um, I had given up control of all my medical decisions to my uh, uh, team at the Cleveland Clinic. And now in retrospect, I realize uh, in doing that, I was actually heading down the path of learned helplessness. Uh, And so... uh, it was a very frightening, very disturbing time. So can you tell us a little bit more about what the paleo diet is and what uh, diet you specifically follow personally? Yeah. So, you know, I've been a vegetarian, no uh, meat. Um, I, I did still have uh, eggs and dairy, uh, but it's mostly uh, beans, legumes, uh, vegetables. Uh, and in 2001, based on my Cleveland Clinic uh, neurology docs, I, uh, I read through a bunch of research on the paleo diet and decided it made sense physiologically. And so I gave up all grain, all legumes, all dairy, and went back to eating meat. And I had to do that transition uh, over uh, several months because that was a, a big, big change for me. Um, and so, really, at that time, <clears throat> the paleo diet was mostly focused on what to take out, you know, the grains, the legumes, the dairy. And so I was having meat uh, um, and progressively uh, larger amounts um, and uh, vegetables, uh, fruits. Um, and it wasn't you know, particularly organized in any uh, very structured way other than the things uh, that I uh, had given up. And, you know, what What I want to be, I love the paleo diet, uh, I love the paleo community, but I have to be very clear, the paleo diet, uh, as described by Orrin Cordain, did not fix me. I continued to decline. Uh, I added vitamins and supplements. That, those didn't fix me, fix me either. I continued to decline, although it was more slow. And if I missed my vitamins and supplements, I could tell that my fatigue and brain fog uh, was worse. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until I, I, I really uh, 
began to stress what to eat that the recovery occurred. Do you still follow this diet uh, routinely on a regular basis? Oh, absolutely. And if I deviate from the diet, my pain uh, recurs uh, to really uh, very horrific levels, uh, so intense that I really can't talk. Uh, It's hard to walk. Uh, It's uh, just profoundly disabling. Uh, and, and so I'm uh, quite meticulous at how I, uh, what kind of eating pattern that I follow. What does a typical day of meals look like for you? So I, I'm now in a, a plan where um, uh, Monday through Friday I just have one meal. So in the morning I'll have green tea and yerba mate tea and water throughout the day. And in the evening I'll have... Um, a huge green salad or a green smoothie. Um, I will have a protein of uh, wild fish or uh, uh, lamb liver or uh, pork or beef, chicken, you know, uh, some kind of uh, meat. And then we'll have uh, some sulfur-rich vegetables, onions, mus- uh, mushrooms, or cabbage family vegetables. Um, and I'll have, um, you know, a, a big green salad with... Uh, right now, we've got uh, a bunch of uh, beets and carrots out of our yard, so uh, I'll grate those and have those raw on my salad. Uh, and then I'll make a uh, uh, coconut milk and uh, flaxseed or chia seed pudding and put some uh, fresh berries up on top of that. That sounds good. That drizzle, awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really yummy. And then I drizzle a little uh, coconut cream or full-fat coconut milk on top of that. And I assure you, it is incredibly yummy. <laughs> and so uh, tonight we'll be having uh, pastured uh, uh, chicken liver, uh, uh, mushrooms and onions, uh, and then I'll have a, a big green salad with uh, uh, grated beets and carrot, uh, raw raw beets and raw carrot salad as well. Mm-hmm. And um, we'll have some uh, a pudding uh, made with aronia berries, and then some uh, fresh berries on top of that with coconut milk. So does your whole family follow the same diet? Um, you know, uh, the family, uh, yes, we don't eat any excluded foods. They, uh, um, you know, my wife eats three meals a day. I only eat one. Uh, uh, but, we, you know, we don't have any contraband uh, in the house by any means. So you say that this changed the way that you kind of, uh, like, practice? Yeah, um, absolutely. At the time, I was in the traumatic brain injury clinic and the uh, primary care clinic. I began to, uh, as I had my own recovery, uh, I started spending a lot more time talking to our patients about uh, the quality of their diet, what kind of toxins they'd been exposed to, uh, uh, what their sleep patterns were, physical activity levels and help them address those issues. Yeah, and what I discovered is that was doing that was far more effective than using a uh, drugs to manage their uh, symptoms or their chronic disease states. Uh, we talked a lot about diet and lifestyle in the traumatic brain injury clinic, and you could tell the people that I saw were much more likely uh, when they came back in six months, to still be working, uh, still be uh, in their family relationships, and to be having far fewer symptoms than the folks who did not see me in the traumatic brain injury clinic. Uh, and 
in internal medicine, similarly, the, kid, the uh, people who uh, uh, saw me uh, really were having some remarkable reversals of their disease states. Uh, the chief of medicine uh, then asked me uh, to create a lifestyle clinic where we uh, could really focus on this type of intervention. And that clinic just did phenomenally well. Uh, it was very, very uh, successful. Um, you know, they have, uh, I think, about a one-year wait list uh, and have added more staff so uh, it could, uh, you know, uh, exist with more clinic days. It's really been uh, a delight to watch. Wow. So so what do you see happening with all of this information you're gathering and this research you're doing? Well, um, you know, what has happened, the MS Society uh, uh, really saw the level of interest in their constituents in diets and lifestyle interventions. Uh, they have uh, been funding research now, uh, testing the questions of the role of diet. Uh, our research lab is, is one of the uh, uh, studies that they funded with over a million dollars. Uh, we've got a couple more years in our study. Uh, so, you know, that is very exciting that our work has influenced um, what the MS Society is doing in the research they are funding. So, so that's exciting. The MS Society also created some uh, educational documents uh, for neurologists and for physicians that talk about the role of diets, including uh, a conversation about uh, the paleo diet, the um, uh, McDougall diet, Swank diet, uh, Mediterranean diet, uh, and the safety profile and the benefits of each of those diets. So it's easier for the public to, to learn about diets and that uh, there is research data supporting the use of diets. So way, way exciting. Uh, uh, we've had more research papers uh, published, more studies uh, that are out. Uh, here at the university, you know, at first people thought I was sort of an odd duck, uh, and now uh, uh, as our research is uh, being published and we're getting funded, and the science about the importance role of the microbiome, now people here at the university, instead of seeing me as an ad, odd duck, are seeing me as this brilliant visionary. Uh, and so there's a lot more interest in what we are doing, a lot more interest uh, by some of the basic scientists uh, eager to uh, collaborate with us to help understand uh, the mechanisms by which uh, we're having such a, a large, favorable impact. You know, it's just like so exciting. I have a hard time sleeping at night sometimes because, you know, it's just so exciting, uh, the things that are happening. So I've spent a lot more time meditating in the evening to, you know, still the mind so I can relax and fall asleep. Yeah, I bet. This is exciting. It's a it's a new way of looking at things. Instead of drugs helping us, it's more like us helping us. Oh, absolutely. We work hard at teaching people uh, uh, how important it is to be in control uh, and to work to improve health. In that, by doing everything you can with diet and lifestyle to improve your health, uh, as a side effect of improved health. There's less need for medication for blood pressure, diabetes, for mood control, inflammation control, pain control. And it's very common in my primary care, in my lifestyle clinics, in the traumatic brain injury clinics, we'd see people need steadily fewer drugs, you know, lower dose of medicines, uh, fewer medications. And if people stayed with the program, uh, you know, uh, they could really develop the goal of wanting to get off 
uh, prescription medications. It's, you know, very, very gratifying. So now how do you feel being on this diet and being active for a while? How does it, how does, how do you feel? You know, my, my family and friends uh, make the observation that I look steadily younger and younger and younger and younger. My kids laugh uh, that I'm pulling a Benjamin button getting younger, and they're afraid that I will pass them as they continue to use them. So we have a lot of uh, uh, fun and uh, laughing about it. I feel great. Uh, you know, if, um, let's say I go to someone's house, and they aren't as meticulous uh, about the food prep, and I accidentally am given uh, something that has gluten in it, uh, within 24 hours, I begin to have uh, symptoms with that horrific uh, pain from the uh, MS, uh, and then I end up need, needing steroids. So over time, I've learned to be very, very explicit with my friends what kind of dietary restrictions that we need, and I'll bring food uh, uh, with me uh, when I'm traveling and when I'm going out, uh, just to be sure that I'm not inadvertently given food that's been contaminated with uh, things that will trigger uh, my pain. Wow, this is this is just such an amazing story with such an amazing message. You know, it, 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 the, the other uh, thing that I uh, talk about is uh, uh, the importance of resilience and in finding the gift and the opportunities in whatever difficult circumstances that you have. Uh, and for me, all uh, of the struggle that I went through and, uh, uh, you know, the recovery and realizing just how significant the role of food and diet and lifestyle environmental exposures is to creating health or disease, it all had to happen this way for me to learn what I did. Uh, and so I have uh, come to uh, perceive my experience with MS to have been difficult, yes, but it's also a profound gift that has enabled me to learn a great deal, to have a lot of meaning in my life, and to transform, you know, the way I practice. Uh, and so we talk a lot about how important it is to find the gift in your own circumstance, uh, to figure out how you're going to give back to the world, and uh, if people can find that in whatever their health challenges are, it will give them much more resilience to thrive, to be willing to do the work, the recovery work that's going to be required uh, to change their lives. Um, and it gives them, uh, we talk a lot about the hero's journey, uh, and that meaning has been very helpful in our uh, traumatic brain injury clinics, uh, in our primary care clinics, uh, in our lifestyle clinics. Well, um, let me encourage your listeners to please go visit my website, terrywalls.com. Um, we have lots of information there uh, to help people learn how uh, to begin this transformation in their own lives. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Terry. You're very welcome. I'm your mother. And I'm your father too And I have come to share the gift of life with you 
Horticulturist and herbologist Michael Longfield's early interest in herbs grew into a lifelong fascination. My studies got more serious maybe eight years ago when I started seriously pursuing it, doing a lot of self-education and reading books and experimenting on myself and friends. And then two years ago, I just finished a four-year program with a East-West School of Planetary Herbology that was founded by Michael and Leslie Tierra, two of the godparents of the American herbal tradition in American herbalism, and can't recommend working through their program enough. And now I cultivate herbs, wild harvest herbs, and have a clinical practice where I meet with clients and help uh, help uh, look at their imbalance through the lens of Chinese herbalism and then recommend them herbs to take. Can you kind of talk about your 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 education and your training, you do Chinese herbology, correct? Yes, indeed. And in the Chinese herbal system, they focus their energy on preventing illness instead of necessarily treating illness. And in one of our oldest herbal texts, the Neijing, that dates back to maybe 200 BC, one of the famous quotes in that book is, Taking herbs once you're sick is like digging a well once you're thirsty. And the entire system is all about cultivating strength in your body, building the energy of your body so you can go beyond just merely treating illness. You can grow your yourself. You can expand yourself spiritually, physically, and mentally and go beyond any threat of illness. Cultivating chi beyond just merely, you know, battling the pathogens that are coming your way, but to evolve. So what does that kind of look like? Like, uh, is there specific herbs that you can take or um, is there like general kind of, what does that look like? Definitely. Um, there's herbs and lifestyle and diet. And in the system, it has to do a lot with harmonizing with nature and harmonizing with the seasons. So certain herbs might be appropriate in certain seasons and certain lifestyles in those seasons. There's general herbs that build your overall vitality. But a lot of it has to do with harmonizing with the changing of the seasons. So in winter, we would consume more warming herbs and less raw foods and more soups. And in summer, we might want to cool off, and that's when we would do more, more fruit and more cooling herbs to cool down, to balance out the energy of those seasons. And then there's general herbs that would promote overall wellness and vitality and immune system. And in Chinese herbalism, we call these the tonic herbs. And they're classified as the superior herbs in herbalism, as herbs that you can take every day to um, progressively grow and build your body up. So a lot of herbs, you wouldn't want to take them every day. 
um, we would call these like middle or lower herbs in Chinese herbalism. They're very important herbs for treating illness, but if you continually take them, they can actually bring your body out of balance. As an example, if there was some herb that lowered your blood pressure, that would be a very useful herb. It would be considered a middle herb. Super vital can save someone's life, but if they kept lowering their blood pressure and taking that herb that lowered their blood pressure um, past reaching the balancing point of their blood pressure, they would eventually have too low of blood pressure. It can take you from out of balance to harmony, but progressively take you out of balance again. These tonic herbs, these superior herbs, are herbs that regulate your system. They will, they, the longer you take them, the more they bring you into harmony. They're essentially like special foods that you can take every day to progressively grow in strength and immune function and longevity. And this whole system had, has been developed over thousands of years, largely in the Taoist tradition, because ultimately we want to have enough energy in our body that we can cultivate spirit. And, you know, it's a spiritual tradition trying to ex extend lifespan so we have more time in this incarnation to fulfill our destiny, to work through our karma and to get our spiritual enlightenment. Some herbs would be uh, reishi mushroom, would build your immune system, harmonize your body, act as a um, anti-cancer, healthy for your heart, and calm your mind. All mushrooms in the tradition are considered tonic herbs herbs that um, also spiritual herbs so all mushrooms will boost your immune system and calm your mind and help cultivate spirit there's so many different herbs and they're different you know some are more appropriate at different times of year some another common one is ginseng or astragalus goji berries uh, endless it just sounds like a lot. How many herbs is someone taking on a given day, or is it is it only a couple of herbs? Really depends on what your situation you're dealing with is and what you're trying to accomplish. So if someone had a really weak um, constitution already, and maybe they were getting sick all the time, and did not feel well, they, they might need to have a more fine-tuned um, recommendation of herbs. And they might need to take more of a complex formula of herbs to rebalance their body. And in such a case like that, it's best to generally work with an herbalist to help fine-tune what herbs those people should be taking to rebalance their body. If someone is already you know in pretty good health, you could take anywhere between one herb a day to a hundred herbs a day, truly, in, in like a complex formula. But it doesn't have to be so complex. The complexity of the amount of herbs often has to do with the complexity of how ill that person is feeling. 
So you could definitely, um, as like a general everyday, building up your immune system, preventing illness, you could probably do one to five herbs a day. Uh, Go-to for building the immune system would be astragalus root. I would recommend that to anyone who's trying to prevent the common cold and flu and just build up their overall immune system function. But, you know, it depends on your goals. Are you trying to build up your your physical endurance? That might be something like Siberian ginseng. Are you trying to expand your lifespan? Anti-aging herbs that slow slow aging and extend life. Reishi mushroom, astragalus, eucomia bark, goji berries. And... Where, if somebody like you know is listening and and is starting to get interested or wants to learn more information, where can the audience, the listeners, find more information and even uh, find these herbs? You could. There's the classic texts, like the uh, Neijing, the classic herbal text that a lot of this information is based off of. But then there's also modern works like um, Ron Teagarden's Tonic Herbalism is a great book to start with. And there's lots of lots of people that you can get the herbs from. Um, ideally, I'd recommend um, learning how to wildcraft some of these herbs yourself and harvest them naturally from your landscape in the wild respectfully. But you can also find them on the internet. And I also run a company, Dancing Spirit Herbs, that we sell um, most of the herbs that were discussed today and and a bunch of others. And do you grow your herbs uh, yourself at Interwoven? Um, We're working towards doing more and more of that. And currently we do grow some of our herbs, and that's the direction we're going with the company to progressively grow more and more. But a lot of these herbs are traditionally gathered in the wild, and they definitely can be cultivated, um, but often the highest quality tonic herbs are believed to be wild harvested because they're able to experience the harshness of nature, the wildness of nature, and that actually is what encourages those plants to create more abundance of the of the of the molecules that cause its medicinal effects. So when we do cultivate them in a farm setting, we want to uh, not baby them and give them more of a, a rough experience of the elements to encourage them to build up their strength and their medicinal qualities. What's kind of the most amazing, like, transformations or uh, developments you've seen when using herbs on your clients? What's, like, a a big story that, like, stands out to you? Um, I was working with a client with severe back pain and that he had had for maybe a couple decades in working with different types of practitioners, never a Chinese herbalist, and in one session of doing some herbal therapy with him. He had better results than he'd had in 
decades of trying different practitioners and the results lasted um, for for months afterwards. I've had clients have uh, um, dislocated joints that have been dislocated for decades relocate themselves. Yeah, those are those are two big ones that come to mind. Yeah, those are amazing. So what kind of, since you've started personally taking herbs, uh, what have you noticed in your your life, in your body, in your energy? <laughs> um, I feel like I am more grounded in who I am. I have more of my personal power. I am more resilient to stress. I feel like I can take on more within my life, so I'm more willing to um, pursue greater challenges in my life that that lead me to greater outcomes and more success. When you, culti- when you cultivate this energy that's built about through tonic herbalism, you, you now have more energy to accomplish more in your life. And it essentially is altering your destiny. Now that you have this en- more energy, now, you, now the, your future is, is forever changed because you can now accomplish more with your life. Um, getting sick less and feeling very called to, to share this with other people. Do you have a website address for your, for your website? Yes, I do. DancingSpiritHerbs.com is our company, our website. We're also on eBay. We also have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter, Dancing Spirit Herbs. Wow. <clears throat> well, thank you so much, Michael. Sarah Lazar, neuroscientist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, has been studying mindfulness and neuroplasticity, how yoga and meditation can actually increase your health and brain function. Sarah, how did you gain interest and involvement in this research? So um, I studied effects of yoga and meditation on the brain. I'm just trying to understand you know, some of the neural mechanisms underlying the beneficial effects of it. How did you come up with this idea to start doing this research? So back in grad school, um, I was actually pretty skeptical at that point about yoga and meditation. Um, you know, I thought it was kind of all hairy, hairy fairy. And then um, I got a sports injury, and a physical therapist told me I needed to just stretch. And I saw an ad for a yoga class, and I thought that would be a great way to just stretch. You know, so I went purely as a form of physical therapy, and it had a profound impact on my life. <laughs> and so then um, I've been, uh, you know, it, it just really... Um, you know, I, I just really want to understand how it worked. So I've been doing the research ever since. What exactly do you do in your research? What is the procedure that people follow? Right. Well, we have two types of studies. One of them is we take people who have been practicing for many, many years and put them in the MRI scanner and we have them do various tasks. We see how are their brains different than the average Joe's. And then we also do studies where we take people who have never done yoga or meditation before 
scan them. We put them through a training program, and then we scan them again, and we see how their brain has changed. And what what do you find are the effects of yoga and meditation? We're actually able to show that even after just eight weeks, we can see changes in the brain structure, so how the brain is wired. And, um, and this has an impact on how people do various tasks. So specifically, we've looked uh, mostly at... Um, uh, some emotion regulation type things, you know, so how they respond to emotional images and what pe- um, people, images of people's emotions, other people's emotions, you know, how they react to that, and also um, how they do on various cognitive tasks. What do you find is, is the difference? In terms of emotion, what we're saying, well, the one study we did was um, with people with anxiety. So it's known that people with certain types of anxiety, they, um, their amygdala, which is like the fight and flight part of the brain, tends to overreact um, to certain stimuli. And so what we found is that after the eight-week program, there was a change in how the amygdala responded, and that was more similar to how people who are not anxious respond. So it was less active. It wasn't so hyperactive anymore. And, um, you know, so just it's to, like, normalize that. And then also we've shown that uh, we gave people a test of... Um, uh, it's called proactive interference, which is basically distractibility, and um, and uh, being able to you know stay doing what you're supposed to be doing. And uh, we found that that change in different brain region was related to that. That it would allow people to stay, um, you know, to be able to just focus on what they're supposed to be doing. So in your brain, we have white matter and gray matter. So white matter is mostly just wiring. Gray matter is where the neurons actually talk to each other and actually things actually happen. And so we found changes in several brain regions. And again, two of them were the amygdala and the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. Those are two I mentioned before. So the amygdala is a fight or flight part of the brain. The hippocampus is a, a memory and attention kind of part of the brain, well, mostly the memory. But um, it's related to various executive functions. So the whole thing of, of not being distracted is because you can remember to, you know, keep what you're supposed to be doing. Um, and then, um, so that was one part of the brain. Another part of the brain was uh, called the mind wandering. And that uh, got bigger, so it's inhibiting mind wandering. It's a part of the brain that um, is destroyed in Alzheimer's disease. And as that gets destroyed, people, of course, go into, you know, they're, they're unable to stay in the pre- focus on the present moment. You know, they're constantly mind wandering. And that area of the brain got bigger, so it's sort of the opposite of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And then we also found a part of the brain that's involved in empathy and compassion that back got bigger. I also saw that uh, even in... Uh, people of older ages, the yoga and meditation helps with their brain staying um, active. Correct. We did that was a study with long-term meditation practitioners and yoga practitioners, and we found that their brains look more like the brains of younger people, mm-hmm. um, you know, compared to to uh, you know, compared to controls. Mm-hmm. So how long how long do you have to practice? Like, what's kind of the regimen? Do you have to stay? on a specific schedule or do you have to do this kind of meditation for a specific amount of time, a specific, you know, amount of days a week? Right. So, um, the studies haven't been big enough yet to really come up with a definitive answer like that. There's been several other studies showing, like, in terms of other general effects that it, it pays to benefit, you know, it's sort of like exercise, you know, so kind of sort of the more you do, the more you're going to benefit. You know, some is good, a little more is better. Um, you know, probably like exercise, doing it 30 minutes, three times a week would probably be useful. Most meditation teachers recommend, you know, practicing every day for 40 minutes. Um, but, you know, even if you can even just do, say, five or 10 minutes a day, there's some real benefit to that. And we don't know yet exactly 
you know, um, you know, with the benefits are of 10 minutes a day versus 40 minutes a day. But, you know, I think, you know, if you can start with 10 minutes a day and then, um, you know, potentially eventually gradually build up, you know, or do 30 minutes or 40 minutes a couple times a week, that you'll definitely get some benefit from that. And does it matter how you practice, like yoga or meditation or maybe like a quiet walk outdoors? Does, does, any, does it matter? Well, uh, yes and no. I guess that that's a complex question. So I would say walking outside, so yoga and meditation, there's more to it than just slow, there's more to meditation than just slow movement, right? And so and going for a walk, you know, in theory it could be a form of meditation, but it isn't, it may or may not be, it depends on how you do it, right? So I guess that, so yes, how you do it matters. So mindfulness meditation and meditation in general, the idea is that you become aware of what your mind is doing and you sort of become aware of that in a very particular way and you, you monitor it. So what that would mean is as you're sitting or walking, of course your mind's going to start to wander. And so our natural habit is to follow along. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I have to go to the store and pick up this and this and this. And, oh, yeah, I have to go do that. And, oh, yeah, I have to, you know, and you, know, you think about all things you have to do or you think about something that happened earlier in the day or some issue you're dealing with. And, right, basically your whatever your mind comes up with, basically we tend to follow after it. And so the idea with meditation, and this could be while you're sitting or doing yoga or walking, and the idea is that what makes a meditation is that you don't, get into the story. You step back and just say, okay, mind's having a story, and you try to instead focus on present moment experience. So in uh, terms of the meditation or the yoga, it would be, okay, what is my body feeling like right now? Right, and that's the whole point of the postures. It's not so much that you're trying to get into a pretzel, but it's rather about, you know, what does my body feel like and really getting inside your body as you do the different postures. Um, and so, again, you could, in theory, while walking, do that and just be aware of, okay, this is what my feet feel like as I make contact with the pavement. This is what the sun feels like on my face. This is what my body feels like I'm in space. So if you really were in the present moment the whole time and really focusing on that sensations, then, yes, walking could be meditation. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, no, just walking outside of nature is not meditation in of itself. Also, a lot of people ask about, okay, what about playing music or other sports? And generally speaking, no. Those are flow states sometimes, but they're not meditation. There is a difference. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's part of your answer. But then in terms of meditation versus yoga versus Tai Chi, we think in those regards, it's a lot like exercise. You know, so how is swimming different than running different from you know, weightlifting? and you were playing soccer. Mm -hmm. And so we know that um, you know every form of meditation that's been studied seems to have stress reduction benefits. And so we think that just as different types of exercise all have a general cardiovascular benefit, um, you know, but then they also have certain specific benefits. So, you know, you only get better at soccer if you practice soccer, right? Mm -hmm. you know, and um, you know, the muscles that you develop during running are gonna be different than the ones you develop Yes, for swimmers, right? And so there are subtle differences between them, and so we think that's the same is true also with yoga and meditation. If there's going to be some general stress reduction benefits and some, you know, probably some benefits that are sort of common across the board, but then other benefits which may be more, um, you know, just to one, you know, one type or another. This is something that people should be doing or would benefit from doing. Um, from the early on in their life until, you know, throughout their whole life until 
until they can't yeah. anymore, essentially. And if is it true that if you would stop doing it for a certain amount of time, you would start declining and, and going back the other way as well? Um, that has not been systematically tested yet, mm -hmm. but the idea is yes. Certainly in terms of brain structure, the idea would be that, I mean, they've done other studies where they've trained people how to do something new, to see the change in the brain, and then, you know, they stop and the brain goes back down. Mm -hmm. So um, that's probably generically true. But it's also sort of true that, you know, you never forget how to ride a bike. And so, but if you've ever tried to ride a bike after many years of not riding a bike, you know that you're a little rusty and it's not quite the same as when you were actively doing it. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of like that, that definitely there's some benefits that you lose pretty quickly, but then some things you, you sort of more or less keep. Do you actively practice in your daily or weekly life? Yes. Yeah. I try to do, you know, five or 10 minutes a day. Don't always succeed. And then a couple times a week I do, you know, 30 or 40 minutes. So where, what's the future in this research? Where is this research headed? Right. Well, there's a couple different ways. I mean, we still, I feel like, have just scratched the surface. You know, so we sort of have identified the areas. Now we need to learn, you know, do more of them, try to figure out what they're doing, how they're working. Um, some of the questions you asked about, you know, different types of yoga meditation. So doing more with that. You know, to say, okay, how does one compare to another one? Uh, looking at in terms of diseases, like, you know, different you know, who benefits, who doesn't, you know, what's the benefit for different disease states, um, you know, that sort of stuff. Is there a website or somewhere that people can go, our audience can go and check out more information if they'd like to learn more? Um, well, certainly I have a website if they want to go there. I'm mm -hmm. not sure much they can find there. And my papers are there, certainly. Um, we've got a couple of review articles that might be useful, um, that if people want to start with that, we, one's a little old, but still pretty relevant from 2011. I'm senior author. Britta Holzel is the first author. Um, and there's some other good articles like that that are out there that sort of, you know, if they want the science. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Sure. Thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on the show today. Any feedback or comments about today's show can be emailed to actionspeaksmedia at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Tune in next week on Action Speaks Media Radio.